Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And we are back with the third episode in our season on literature and race. Last week, we talked to you about the author and activist L. Maria Child and touched briefly on her writing The Preface for Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself an autobiography by Harriet Jacobs. This week, we are digging into that book with special guest Dr. Caritha Mitchell. We'll also be talking a little bit about Frances Harper. But before we get into that, I think that we should re-familiarize ourselves with these two authors. What do you think, Hannah? Yeah, and I'd like to start with uh, Harper first, because for this episode, at least... I think her story is so much more interesting when you consider it alongside Jacob. So I want to like mm-hmm. set the scene, right? I want to sure. I want you to think about I want you to think about Harper when we're talking about Jacobs and some other people that might spring up surprisingly in the episode. <laughs> Get those shot glasses ready cuz uh here comes Harriet Beecher Stowe. So Frances Ellen Watkins Harper was born in Baltimore in 1825. And she was the only child of two free African-Americans. Her parents passed away when she was just three years old. So she was adopted by her aunt and uncle. Her uncle was a civil rights activist and minister who ran the Academy for Negro Youth, where Frances was a student. She was publishing pieces in anti-slavery journals as young as 14 and ended up publishing her first book of poetry entitled Forest Leaves when she was just 20. For many years, this book was thought to be lost to time, but a copy was discovered just a few years ago by the academic Joanna Ortner, who we previously had on the show. In December 1853, Frances Harper released a poem in honour of Harriet Beecher Stowe, thanking her for her allyship, and it goes like this. For the sisters of our race, thou'st nobly done thy part. Thou hast won thyself a place in every human heart. The halo that surrounds thy name hath reached from shore to shore, but thy best and brightest fame is the blessing of the poor. It's a great poem. Great poem. Just going to leave that one hanging there, right? (laughs) We'll get back to it. (laughs) So shortly after this poem was published, Harper began touring the country to give readings of her poems and preaching against slavery. And as you can imagine, travel was extremely dangerous for her as a single black woman. And it was even more dangerous after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. Harper was born free, but there were reports of free African-Americans being entrapped and sent into slavery, either for reward money, revenge or mistaken identity. So it's really notable that she went on the traveling circuit. We'll leave it here for Harper for the time being. But if you want to know more about her, then you can check out Uh, bonnets at dawn season three episode 20 or plug for our book you can buy why she wrote because she's one of the featured authors and there is a bio comic and an essay and yeah we just get into it in the book yeah true story um so now let's talk about harriet jacobs shall we So Jacobs really lived quite the life and a lot of it is covered in her autobiography. So this is going to be a very condensed introduction. So Harriet Ann Jacobs was born in 1813 or 1815. That is in dispute. Records, not so great. Remember that. (laughs) Um, So she was born in Edenton, North Carolina. 
She was born into slavery and she was the daughter of two enslaved people who had different masters. Following the death of her mother, when she was just six years old, Harriet moved in with her mistress, Margaret Hornablow. Hornablow. <laughs> Hornablow. Hornablow, who taught her how to read and write. Margaret had made promises to emancipate Harriet, but then passed before that became an actual reality. Harriet then became property of Margaret's three-year-old niece, Mary Matilda Norcom, when she was 12 years old. In the Norcom household, Harriet was subjected to the unwanted sexual advances of Dr. Norcom, as well as the vindictive abuse of Mrs. Norcom. In 1835, Harriet made a plan to escape. Now, first, she went to her grandmother's house nearby. Her grandmother had been free and had a, actually had a home of her own. Harriet hid in the tiny crawl space in the attic for seven years, all while writing to the Norcoms and just telling them that she had escaped to the north so they, they would go ahead and look for her there. It wasn't until 1842 that Harriet was able to escape north to Philadelphia by boat. From Philadelphia, Jacobs traveled to New York, where she was hired by the Willis family as a nanny. Nathaniel Parker Willis was the highest paid magazine writer of his day and was friends with the likes of Edgar Allan Poe and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was also Sarah Willis's brother. Sarah is better known under her pen name, Fanny Fern, and she was a popular columnist and author of the book Ruth Hall, which Lauren always recommends to Gaskell fans. Lauren is a huge Fanny Fern fan. I I love this book. We should talk about this book on the podcast someday. One day. So the Willis family, Sarah in particular, were friendly with Harriet Beecher Stowe, who went to school with Sarah. Now Harriet just worms her way in there, always, always. So for the next 10 years, Harriet Jacobs was constantly moving around the East Coast because she was hiding from Dr. Norcom, but was always circling back to the Willis family. During this time, Jacobs became very close with an activist named Amy Post, who was a prominent abolitionist. Jacobs felt comfortable enough around Post to confide all the sensitive details about her life in slavery as well as her escape. And for years, Post tried to convince Jacobs to publish her story. But Jacobs was hesitant for a variety of reasons. Retaliation, afraid to relive the trauma, and most of all, she was afraid she would become unemployable. Post eventually convinced Jacobs to write down just an outline of her story, which she then forwarded to Harriet Beecher Stowe, in the hopes that Beecher Stowe might form a creative partnership with Jacobs, share some publishing advice, or like serve as an editor of the book, Beecher Stowe, didn't respond. So then Harriet Jacobs' employer, Cornelia Willis, wife of Nathaniel, reaches out to Beecher Stowe with a different request. It was really well known that Harriet Beecher Stowe was about to embark on this tour of England to celebrate her huge success. And Willis wanted to know if perhaps, you know, just maybe she would like for Harriet Jacobs' daughter, Louisa, to accompany her on the journey so she could tell her story and give a first-hand account of slavery. Jacobs was prepared to pay for this expense and Harriet Beecher Stowe did respond to this letter uh, to say, no, she didn't want to take Louisa to be petted and spoiled by too much sympathy shown to her by the sort of people she would meet in England. 
And then the other thing that Beatrice Stowe did was she forwarded the outline that Post had sent to her to ask Willis if she could just verify the story because she wanted to publish it in her book, A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm. Getting echoes of that Frederick Douglass story that we heard last Mm -hmm. week. (laughs) Jacobs was offended by what was said about her daughter and the threat to her reputation and employment. Jacobs had included very personal information in that outline, which Beecher Stowe forwarded to her employer. Willis responded on Jacobs' behalf, letting Beecher Stowe know that she could not use her story in the key, but that she would be willing to answer any questions that Beecher Stowe might have about slavery to make sure that the book was a success. And guess what? Harriet Beecher Stowe does not respond. The whole incident spoiled Harriet Beecher Stowe in Harriet Jacobs' eyes and inspired her to write down her own story under the pseudonym Linda Brent. And that is the book that became Instance in the Life of a Slave Girl. I think what's interesting is we're going to talk about this quite a bit in the interview is like to remember that this is an autobiography, but then also she is using this pen name of Linda Brent. And I kind of think it's, you know, one to sort of remove her, obviously, from the story so that she doesn't, you know, have all of these uh, threats to her reputation and future employment, but then also like to relive your trauma, like to Mm -hmm. just sort of separate yourself um, from this like character that you create. I think it may be, I wonder if that was just easier to write the book that way. And also like you've renamed everyone else at that point, right? And so, yeah, just in, in terms of writing it, exactly what you're saying. You can't rename and reframe every other part of the story and then have yourself just in the middle of it. Right. Well, I mean, you could, but yeah, yeah you I could, understand but what yeah. you mean about it being like the self-defense thing, definitely. For years, Jacob tried to get her story published. Various publishers suggested that she reach out to, you know, a big name author to get them to write a preface or edit her book so that she could attract a bigger audience. And um, this is something that Felicia and I actually talked about at length during our interview, some of which was cut out. And one thing that we discussed um, was that a lot of these slave narratives um, in the eyes of the publishers and probably certain members of the public really needed popular abolitionists to edit or write the preface for these books as an endorsement almost like Mm -hmm. I am giving them my stamp of approval which just you know think about that for a minute because that really puts a lot of power in the hands of these white abolitionists Mm -hmm. right and um, they're the ones that sort of get to determine who shares their stories yeah like the white abolitionists are gatekeeping Yes. The experience of being enslaved. Yeah. There's a real ick factor here, right? Unless you yeah. have an editor who's like, let me just help you move this along and mm-hmm. not really insert myself into it. Um, it was Maria Weston Chapman, the anti-slavery bazaar organizer and editor who we discussed last week that actually ended up writing a bunch of letters of introduction on behalf of Harriet Jacobs to help find an editor. And that is actually how she was eventually connected with Lydia Maria Child, who we discussed last week. Incidents was reviewed well and it sold decently, but sadly, a pirated version of the book took off in the UK. So Jacobs did not have the same sort of payday as Harriet Beecher Mm. Stowe. So it's interesting, in caps, 
in quotes, <laughs> that Beecher Stowe did not form a partnership with Jacobs. If Stowe was able to set aside her ego, I think that she really would have realized that this could have been a mutually beneficial relationship. I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin was a massive financial success, but it was also receiving quite a bit of criticism. So you have people on both sides of the slavery debate questioning whether or not Harriet Beecher Stowe had the credibility to actually author this text, so much so that she was writing an entire book to address them. So, you know, a partnership between her and Harriet Jacobs and Louisa would have really helped the issue. And also like just, you know, promoting and centering black voices in the slavery debate would have been a good thing to do. But we have been studying Stowe just like inadvertently. We don't mean to. She just keeps <laughs> happening to us. We've been studying Stowe on this podcast um, for quite a while now. So honestly, when we sit down and think about it, it's not it's not surprising at all that this surprise. whole situation no. happened. Um, I've listed a few reasons. Hannah, why don't you take number one for us? Okay, so one, Stowe can't pass the mic because she just can't let anything go. The True subtitle story. to A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin reads, presenting the original facts and documents upon which the story is founded together with corroborative statements verifying the truth of the work. So this is a non-fiction book about people who have escaped slavery that she has directly aimed at all of her critics to defend her book and reputation, which is very much her thing. She writes the true story of Lady Byron's life for the Atlantic. And when there is backlash to that, she writes Lady Byron Vindicated as a response. There's My Wife and I and Pink and White Tyranny, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. This woman is not getting off the stage. No, she's defensive. She's going to write it in the preface. She's going to write another book. She's going to write an article like she's going to tell you why she is right. She can't let it go. Thank God that didn't have a podcast. <laughs> Sorry. She would have. Sorry. Um, number two, Stowe's getting rich and famous off of her position as an author and activist, right? She's mm -hmm. got money. She's got accolades, celebratory tours and dinners. Dickens is obsessed with her. He can't stop writing about Stowe or Uncle Tom's Cabin. And honestly... That's another podcast for another day. And it's wild. It's wild how pressed Dickens is. I feel like maybe we should just do an episode of just like Dickens is pressed. Here, here's can, what he's pressed we about. We can do a Dickens episode. We can make, okay. that. We'll we make, can that, make happen. that happen. <laughs> Double day. Yeah. So number three, uh, we have to credit Felicia here because one thing that she said during her interview with Lauren that didn't make the cut was that Stowe did not want to touch Jacob's story because she didn't want to sully her brand. Jacob's story deals with sexual harassment and that would have just been too much for Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, number four, Stowe's own biographer, Joan Hendricks said that Stowe's insensitivity bred by class and skin privilege, probably exacerbated by her sense of literary ownership of the tale of the fugitive slave Probably is why she turned down Harriet Jacobs' request. Um, and uh, yeah, that ownership, that word there really got to me because I do think that she, she's like, yeah, this is my thing. Mm -hmm. 
And Stowe is very much like a pick me kind of gal, isn't she? Yeah. And I Which think is it's she... amazing that her and George Eliot were friends. <laughs> like it makes sense, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also make it make sense. Because you can't they must have cancelled each other out. It's a good it's a good job that they were like pen pals, right? Imagine they, if they were in a room yeah. together. They were never in the same space. Can you imagine? We've like solved that mystery today, I feel. <laughs> Um, so I do think like Stowe had this idea that she was definitely better equipped to tell these stories, even more so than, you know, people of color, honestly. Mm-hmm. Now, this episode belongs to Harriet Jacobs and Frances Harper. So you might be wondering why I'm giving so much oxygen to Harriet Beecher Stowe. And the answer is that um, obviously I just can't let anything go just like Stowe. But Really, um, it's because I think about these relationships all of the time. Both Harper and Jacobs admired Stowe. They thought of her as an ally. Jacobs is the one that, you know, has the personal relationship and reaches out. And Stowe is focused on herself rather than the cause. And I find this especially relevant in the wake of, you know, everything that went down in 2020, Because I am just seeing history repeat itself over and over again, all over the place, you know, in the workplace, online, in academia, and publishing, just everywhere. I was literally just talking about a TikTok scandal with a friend that involved white activists who were stealing talking points and content from marginalized creators, you know, just to boost their own followings and, of course, you know, line their pockets. So... All of this is to say, you know, be on the lookout for those Harriet Beecher Stowe's out there. Now, I did talk to today's guest about Stowe a little bit, and we said a lot of what has been said already, but um, there is one clip from that interview that I just want to play for you right now real quick. One of the other things that I will say um, I was struck by is Yellen talks about the fact that um, Harriet Jacobs does finally have an occasion to meet Harriet Beecher Stowe in person. And this is when Jacobs is in Cambridge and Stowe visits. And she gives Jacobs an inscribed copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And that gift stays in the family for more than a century. So really, so, you know, Yellen kind of gives us the impression, if nothing else, (laughs) that it's not like she burned it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's all I'm going to say. Because, you know, I, I think that I think Yellen is careful. She just gives us, you know, what mm-hmm. happened. It stays in the family for a century. But um, but yeah, so I thought that that was interesting. So that, that happens in like 1871, 1872 ish when she's in. OK. Cambridge. OK, so that was a little taste of our interview. But Hannah, why don't you go ahead and give everyone a full introduction to our guest before we dive back in. Caritha Mitchell is author of the award-winning book, Living with Lynching, and her public commentary has appeared in outlets such as Time, CNN, and Good Morning America. 
Her second monograph, From Slave Cabins to the White House, Homemade Citizenship in African-American Culture, appeared in August 2020 and was named a Best Book of 2020 by Ms. Magazine and Black Perspectives, and it became a 2021 Choice Outstanding Academic Title. She is the editor of the Broadview edition of Francis E.W. Harper's 1892 novel, Iola Leroy, and is currently at work on the Broadview edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs. On Twitter, she's at Prof Corrie. Harriet Jacobs is an absolutely remarkable Black woman of the 19th century. Um, So often people who know anything about African-American literature and history of the 19th century will know the name Frederick Douglass, but they won't be able to name Black women of the same time period. And it seems to me that very often, if they can, it's probably going to be Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman. But part of what makes me so fascinated by Harriet Jacobs is that she's the first woman to first African-American woman to write her own life story, right? So Tubman and Sojourner Truth are able to dictate their life story, but Harriet Jacobs actually writes her own. And she writes it under the title Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which is published in 1861. So having published Incidents, her life story um, is what makes her most famous. But part of what's so powerful for scholars now is that beginning in 1981, Jean Fagan Yellen was able to document that the facts in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl were actually facts um, and was able to you know, do all of the archival research to show that it was actually um, her life story and to verify that she had actually written it. So part of what Yellen has done now as well is document that Harriet Jacobs had a very long life of activism after Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl was published in 1861. She spent decades um, starting schools in various cities. Um, She spent decades doing boarding houses, both in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in Washington, D.C. So now we have a much better sense of just how much her activism spanned long after incidents in the life of a slave girl. Um, But you also asked me to talk about incidents itself, right, Um, Mm -hmm. as a text. And, you know, Lauren, I've taught incidents so many times Mm -hmm. over the, what, now 17 years that I've been an English professor. Sometimes I teach it in excerpt, sometimes the whole thing. Regardless, I'm astonished every single time. And so upon reading it again this time, (laughs) I have to tell you that what most strikes me is not only everything that she endured, but how beautifully she writes about it. So Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is basically a slave narrative in that she begins it by telling us, yes, I was born into slavery. I had a happy childhood, so I didn't actually know that I was enslaved until, you know, my mother died when I was age six. 
Um, and she ends up having to move into the house of the person that she calls Dr. Flint in the narrative. I guess that's the other thing I should say is that Harriet Jacobs writes incidents in the life of a slave girl and casts herself as a character named Linda Brent. And so it's Linda Brent in this battle for her life and her freedom and her sexual autonomy against Dr. Flint in the pages of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. So she starts it off by talking about how she was, you know, born into slavery, um, didn't know she was a slave until she had less, um, you know, kind of shielding from the institution. By age 12, she moves into the house of Dr. Flint. And um, by the time she's 15, he's starting to sexually harass her. She speaks of it in terms of him saying, you know, lewd things to her, writing her notes, all of this kind of thing. But basically the story becomes her attempt to prevent him from raping her um, and to, if she has to be in a situation where she can't marry the person she's actually in love with as a teenager, she falls in love with a free black man. And Dr. Flint basically says, if I see him around here again, I'll shoot him just as I would a dog. And so she tells the story of how she gives up the dream of being a respectable wife and mother. And so at that point, when she sends her, um, you know, beau away, she tells him to forget her. And in the narrative, readers can see how she changes her tactics about what she's going to pursue in her life. I can't be a respectable wife and mother. So let me just try to create a situation where if I have to have children, at least I can maneuver things so that they might end up being free children and not constantly enslaved. So she frustrates Dr. Flint's attempts to put her in a house so he can treat her as his concubine. She frustrates those attempts by having an affair basically with a white man in town that she calls in the book, Mr. Sands. Now let's be clear. <laughs> As I always say to my students, let's be clear. Dr. Flint is 40 years older than her. So he's about 55 when she's 15 and he starts harassing her. Let us not think that Mr. Sands is some kind of fabulous guy. He's like in his 40s and she's 15. So let's just be really clear about the landscape here that Jacobs has to navigate. Um, but anyway, she has this affair, we'll call it, with Mr. Sands. And that creates the situation whereby her two children apparently are fathered by Mr. Sands. And that's what gives her some flexibility on trying to make sure that they aren't enslaved for the rest of their lives. But Dr. Flint doesn't leave her alone. And he sends her to his son's plantation in the book. I'm still just talking about incidents, right? So mm -hmm. he sends her to his son's plantation. And shortly thereafter, when she prepares things for the son's um, future wife, who will come and become mistress of this plantation, shortly thereafter, the threat is that both of her children will be sent to the plantation, because that is what 
makes her finally say, wait a second, if they send my children here and we're all trapped here and their goal is to break us in because I have too much self-pride, then this is my time that I have to run away. And so that's the point at which she runs. She first ends up at the house of a white woman who's willing to um, shield her for a while. She can't stay there forever. She ends up in the swamp for a while. Um, while her uncle is creating this attic space, which of course is the most famous thing about incidents in the life of a slave girl, um, that it's this cramped attic space that she lives in for literally six years and 11 months. Um, and so she stays there writing letters to Dr. Flint, making him think that she's in the North already. And that's part of how she ends up with a way to actually get to the North after almost seven years. And she makes her journey to the North. In incidents, basically, we see her go from the South to Philadelphia and then to New York. And there are a few other details that I can give you later. But Incidents tells you kind of that story of how much she had to use her ability to read and write and other skills and other community members to set herself free and finally get to the North. So I'm curious to know why this text? What is it about this text that made you want to do a Broadview edition and How do your students respond to it when you teach it? The reason I was so interested in proposing a broad view edition of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl is that college students come to my class with at least some awareness at this point of the Me Too movement, of Time's Up, of the fact that Donald Trump was elected after we learned of his bragging about grabbing women by the private parts. They come aware that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court despite the very credible sexual assault allegations from Professor Blasey Ford. And so, There's so many ways, Lauren, in which it's clear to me that the brave, courageous women and men who speak out under the umbrella of Me Too, all of them stand on the shoulders of Harriet Jacobs. Her text makes it so clear that there is no such thing as a private issue without political implications. I'm astonished by the rigor with which Jacobs speaks about the violence that is baked into American domesticity. You can't read her text and think that whatever we hold up as the virtues of domesticity, the the values of privacy, whatever we think 
is what is to be valued about having a home of one's own. You can't read her and not notice how much she understands that the very idea of being safe at home is a weapon that's used against her. So when he builds this house so that he can make her his concubine, part of what she's exposing to you is what are the structures that make it such that someone can even be man of the house? Incidents in the life of the slave girl lets you see how our idea of head of household itself is based on the structure that plantation slavery creates. The fact that you can have a plantation, what makes you a man in the United States, what makes you a man, a citizen with, I don't know, rights, is that you lord over not only the white women who can't talk about the fact that you're raping your enslaved people, but also lording over the enslaved people. My students cannot help but see along with me how rigorously Jacobs is exposing the violence that is baked into everything they have been taught to value, the violence that is baked into how this country was set up to make sure that only some people were safe in these structures that create the hierarchy that says, I don't know, white women should be protected, but your person who has one drop quote unquote, a black blood can be sold as a fancy girl. Like there is no way <laughs> to read Jacobs and not understand those kinds of things. So I think for me, my students' willingness to engage with the rigor that Jacobs brings is exactly why I wanted to do an addition. But here's the other thing that you have me thinking about. It's also always a challenge to make sure that students are paying, paying attention to genre because the writing is so beautiful and the structure of the narrative so compellingly wrought. You can believe that it's a novel. Mm -hmm. If you're not reading carefully, and rigorously, right? So this is part of what I'm always doing in my class is saying, okay, how can we be a rigorous intellectual community? And part of what this text does in terms of cutting my work out for me <laughs> is mm -hmm. it makes it so clear how we all have to keep holding each other accountable to think in terms of genre. What is she doing that lets you get comfortable with the idea of calling it a novel. I need all of us to, the moment you hear your classmates say novel, everyone should be having a fit. I want mm -hmm. y'all to be mad about that because we start out with Lydia Maria Child making clear in the you know beginning, I only edited this. This mm -hmm. is her true story. Jacobs in her preface says, this may sound unbelievable, but this is strictly true. So mm -hmm. let us not disrespect the work by calling it a novel 
I, that is just a slip of the tongue that will not fly in my class. So mm-hmm. part of what you have me thinking about is that kind of rigor that is required to do justice to the work because not only is what she goes through so appalling, but on top of that, she manages to write about it so beautifully and compellingly. Here's the other thing you have me thinking about though. On this read, I was struck again by how much, how much physical violence there is and how much physical, how much threat of physical violence there is. So again, I think that that's part of why I find it such an important text to teach every chance I get, because she has you grappling with her intellect such that you can easily get caught up in the way that the text has you grapple with what is kind of an intellectual struggle and a power struggle over trying to keep herself safe, right? The different plans she devises. So all of that feels very intellectual in a certain kind of way. And you can really focus on that. And I think, especially if I'm thinking about the Me Too movement and my declaration that we stand on her shoulders, that um, engagement with how much intellectual work she's engaged in, and also how honest she is about the trauma of what she has gone through. All of that can actually make you overlook how much physical violence there is too. That not only does Dr. Flint hit her at certain points, he tries not to usually, right? Because that makes when he does even more powerful, right? Mm -hmm. But not only does he hit her, not only does he cut her hair off, but there's also moments when she lets you know that there were times when he held a blade to her throat. So on this read, I was struck by how much I had focused on the, the trauma, the emotional and the intellectual and had not actually attended to all the physical violence that she gives voice to in this text. So again, all of this is to answer the question of how rich this text is for teaching. And that's exactly why I wanted to do an edition of it. And the way that Broadview editions operate is exactly the kind of treatment that I believe Incidents deserves because it's a thorough introduction that lays things out in a way that is, you know, in, in, in my hand at least, a way that makes the entry points multiple for multiple readers at different levels, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm very invested in this being an addition that can teach well K through 12 as well as higher ed. So the introduction kind of does that work, but then you reproduce the narrative itself with heavy footnotes so that I'm giving you historical reference points. I'm also defining Mm -hmm. words so that people don't even have to pull out their dictionary if they don't want to. Mm -hmm. Um, And then appendices, with historical documents and other ways to contextualize what we have just witnessed in the narrative itself. So the richness is exactly why I wanted to do a Broadview edition of this this amazing narrative.
part of the rigor that I'm talking about Jacob's engaging is that she is so rigorous regarding the law. She mm -hmm. makes so clear how the law is what structures the violence she is perpetually navigating. Right. And so even with the fugitive slave law, she has an entire um, chapter that she names that, but she calls out the fugitive slave law throughout the narrative in different ways. But the law in general is important to her because she understands that that is what makes it possible for her to be considered a chattel for her to be considered you know, a piece of property and that the law of this entire country has backed up Dr. Flint's ridiculousness, that's too generous, despicableness, evil. <laughs> he couldn't be this evil without the law. What are some of the things that you're specifically highlighting for your Broadview edition of the text? So, one thing that I haven't seen people highlight as much as I intend to is how much thinking about Black sailors, like how much that figures into the story that Jacobs tells. There are so many characters in um, incidents who are Black sailors. So one of the most important is Peter. He is Again, I'm using the names that are in the narrative. Um, Peter is the person that helps her to get from her attic space to the north. And part of what allows him to do that is because he is a boatman or a sailor. Um, Aunt Nancy, one of Jacobs's um, closest confidants throughout because Aunt Nancy is the one who doesn't discourage her from running away during the time that her grandmother is constantly discouraging her from running away. And Aunt Nancy's husband is another person who's a sailor. Then once they're in the North, Jacobs's brother, in the narrative, he's called William. In real life, he's John S. He's a sailor. When Jacobs's son comes to the North, by the time he's a teenager and she ends up having to go to England to be with the baby of the person who hired her. And this is the other thing I have to say. The other thing that Jacobs makes so clear is that even once she's in the North and she's free, because of the injustice of this country, after working all those years for zero pay, she has to work her fingers through the bone for the rest of her life. And even when she's first in the North and enjoying so-called freedom, her freedom is curtailed by just how much she's having to work to try to make ends meet. And the intensity of that has everything to do with slavery because she's trying to make sure that her children can't be bought away from her or sold away from her. So her needing to make certain kinds of money has everything to do with how anxious she is about the people who enslaved her making a claim on her children because slavery follows the condition of the mother. So at one point, because she can make more money by attending her now widowed employer and his baby to England, she goes to England, ends up having to stay there for like 10 months. And by the time she comes back, her son has left. He has sailed off because the apprenticeship that she left him uh, with 
they find out that he has colored blood and they start treating him like crap. And so he sails and becomes a sailor. So there's another way that becoming a sailor um, for black men becomes a way of creating possibility. And that's one of the things that I think I'll be highlighting with the way that I am editing the narrative that I haven't seen highlighted as much. The other thing that you had me thinking about though, is just how much the jail <laughs> figures in this narrative. It is always a threat of jail. And so Jacobs makes crystal clear again that you could not have this kind of oppression of human beings without a constant threat of something as violent as jail um, and how much constables, come into the picture to threaten and to keep people in check and yeah so that's the other thing that i think i noticed to a degree that i think has to be drawn out a bit more in order to understand what i think is at the heart of what jacobs achieves which is to really expose the violence baked in to the nation's power dynamics and so if we're thinking in terms of the power dynamics that make the Me Too movement necessary, we shouldn't be too far removed from understanding the power dynamics that have made mass incarceration right now possible, right? Mm -hmm. That make human trafficking right now possible. Like all of those power dynamics, I think is part of what Jacobs makes us grapple with when she brings up jail and the threat of jail throughout her narrative. So that'll be another thing that I'll, I think I'll try to draw, draw out. Um, now we'll switch gears a little bit to Frances Harper because we love Frances around here. Um, we have done an episode on her, but you know, in case people aren't gonna go back in the archives, you just like refresh our memory and just tell us a little bit about who she is. Well, Frances Harper is another truly extraordinary Black woman of the 19th century. And part of what is striking about her is she has such, well, like Jacob, such a long career so that she is doing work that is around, you know, abolition and um, helping people after the Civil War and then transitioning into other movements like movements for, you know, suffrage, women's suffrage, temperance. I mean, she just has a long, long career. Um, my entry point for her really was Iola Leroy, which is her fourth novel, the one novel that she publishes as a bound book in 1892. And again, it's a text that I felt needed the Broadview edition treatment because it's a text that I teach all the time, exactly because the narrative covers the antebellum period, the Civil War, emancipation, post-emancipation. It covers that incredibly important time period 
in a novel so that it allows me to cover so much material with my students, material that still shapes the environment <laughs> that we still mm -hmm. very much live in. Um, but the thing that people should remember, I guess, about Frances Harper, one thing is that she is as prolific and well-known as Frederick Douglass. Like, in terms of being an author and a speaker, an orator, like she's as prominent as him, even though we don't think of her in those terms. So she begins her, her career as a poet and orator. She writes poetry throughout her career, transitioning at certain points to fiction, but never leaving poetry behind. So she writes in every genre you can think of. She also publishes um, like sketches, so short story kind of things, as well as novels, she is all over the place with how prolific she is. So I think that's the other thing I would remind people about Frances Harper is just how prominent she is. And part of what allows people to not understand how important she was is that during her lifetime, a lot of times she would sell her books at her speaking engagements, which were so frequent. And so it was after her death that it was easy to kind of act as if she didn't have as big of a following as she actually did in life because she was no longer kind of in control of the selling and distribution of, of her work. But I would say that's the other thing I would remind listeners of. I know that part of what you all did was um, when the forest leaves was discovered, Joanna Ortner discovered that and rocked everybody's world in our field of study. Um, and so I know that your focus before was kind of on her poetry. So for me, the fiction ends up being really important. So there's a lot going on in Iola Leroy. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about what your experience was like editing that book? The thing that was most striking from my experience of editing it, okay, is I really had to confront. <laughs> I really had to confront how much of a heathen I've become. <laughs> because Harper's Christianity is so important to all of the work she did throughout the entire span of her long, long career. And what I had to finally face as I was finalizing the work is how much I had not given space to and given proper honor to how much Christianity actually shaped the work she was doing. And so when I realized that, it actually changed how my introduction functions. <laughs> um, so I would say that from a personal standpoint, that was the thing that stands out for me, just in terms of how doing the difficult work of editing Iola Leroy, how doing that work changed me as a person and as a scholar. It made me more aware of my um, distance from Christianity since I've become a scholar. So that's one way that I'll answer your question. The other way I'll answer the question is to say that what I was most invested in doing and that I am so proud of because I think I did it damn well is I made it very clear 
that you cannot believe that whiteness isn't structuring your experience as a reader. Like you can't deny how much whiteness structures experience as a reader, as a teacher. I did a really good job <laughs> of making clear how whiteness in the United States has structured the experience that we are told to not question. So part of how that comes out in the edition, I mean, it comes out in so many ways, but part of how it comes out is I was really invested in, as I said before, the appendix model that comes with the broad view was part of what had me excited about doing the edition. And so part of what I wanted to do is to make clear how in your education in the United States, you're always taught to read from the standpoint of whiteness. You're not actually told and guided through an experience that makes black people's experience central. So part of the way that I think my edition exposes how much violence is done when we pretend that whiteness is neutral, part of how it does it is to have an appendix that includes legal decisions, uh, not just Dred Scott decision that says that black people have no rights that white men are obligated to acknowledge, but also a case where in Michigan, a person who had something like 1 16th of black blood, it's like, duh, he was arrested for voting, of course. So when I provide you with material like that, it makes it clear like, okay, whiteness has never been neutral. It has always been a violent mechanism. And how can you possibly think that if your bookshelf is full of white authors, that has nothing to do with race. But when you finally acknowledge the existence of a prolific writer like Francis Harper, now we're talking about race. So the way I edit Iola Leroy makes stuff like that clear. The other way I'll, I'll say it is so much of Iola Leroy is about Black people who are trying to find family members that were sold away from them during slavery. And so in the appendices, I include advertisements that are Black people trying to find somebody that was sold away from them during slavery. And I include them from newspapers all over the country so that students can see this was a novel, but that search for loved ones is a real life thing. And here are some moments from newspapers from around the country. In one that I include in the appendix, a brother is looking for his sister that he hasn't seen in about 35 years. So for me, that's another way of showing, look at how your education has taught you to never actually center the experience of anybody who isn't white. Mm -hmm. Look at the power 
of never having really had to center anyone who wasn't white. Look at how that shapes your view on the world. Look at how it shapes your view of yourself. So, so yeah, all of that's just to say that these authors are just bringing too much rigor to the table for our reading practices to continue to be as intellectually lazy as they are, you know? But mm -hmm. it's not an accident that our reading practices are intellectually lazy, right? It's on purpose because everything yeah. is designed to say that only, that humanity only exists in one form, really. <laughs> so we love a connection between authors around here. Can you tell us, is there a connection between Frances Harper and Harriet Jacobs? And um, do you think that incidents may have actually been an inspiration for Iola? Um, I believe absolutely. And mm. one of the things that, and if you wanna know the truth, I bet I say something in my Iola Leroy edition but I don't recall what it is. But what I will bring to the table now that I thought was really exciting is Yellen shares with us that Louisa Jacobs, um, around the time that she's about 34 in 1867, and she tries her hand at anti, um, at the, the lecture circuit. She is part of those conversations, right, um, that Frances Harper is so famous for having said, you know, about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But anyway, they have that break where um, they're trying to push for the vote for white women and seeing it mm -hmm. in opposition to the vote for black men. And Frances Harper famously talks about how white women always go for race. And during that mm -hmm. same time, it actually 1867. So when this stuff is starting to come to a, a head, um, Frances Harper encounters Louisa. So given that Iola Leroy, she doesn't publish that until 1892. I feel very confident that it makes sense that part of what she is engaging with by writing a text that spans the antebellum period, the Civil War, and post, there's no way that she's not also thinking about Harriet Jacobs, the mother of this woman that she had encountered. So, mm -hmm. so I'm sure there are other ties, but that is another confirmation for me um, that I was not dreaming things up whenever I said whatever I said about mm -hmm. believing that Iola Leroy is partly influenced by the story of incidents in the life of a slave girl. And especially because especially because Harper did so much traveling and speaking too, mm. there's, there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be any way that she wasn't very aware of um, Harriet Jacobs's work with the contraband camps. So when she's in Alexandria, Virginia in particular, right, and she's working with the freedmen um, and, well, first the people who are contraband, the one who have run away, and then after the Civil War, right, they become freedmen, I guess, more properly. But 
her work in the contraband camps, there's no way that that's not influencing what, um, what Frances Harper is writing about when she writes Iola Leroy. So that's the other reason why I've, I feel very sure. It's not simply that Louisa and Harper would have crossed paths. It's also the fact that Harriet Jacobs um, in those latter decades of her activism is doing so much with first the contraband camps and then freedmen and so on. Here's the mm -hmm. other connection. How could I forget this? So much of what Jacobs is doing in the 1870s, 1880s is boarding houses. She runs boarding houses in Cambridge and then in Washington, DC. And so part of what you see in Iola Leroy is Ma Smith's boarding house and the kind of conversations that get fostered in Black communities because of boarding houses. And part of what we learn from Yellen's biography of Harriet Jacobs is the people who pass through her boarding house in Cambridge, a lot of them are related to or affiliated with the university. Um, Henry James's friend comes through. Like, I mean, there's just, so that's the other thing is that the boarding house, I know that I know that Harper is paying homage to just a cultural phenomenon among African-Americans in terms of literary salons. But I would say that the boarding house is also the reason why I would feel justified in suggesting that Iola Leroy is gesturing toward Harriet Jacobs and her very long career. And we are back. Uh, great interview. Like stopped me in my tracks. Great. Thank you. Loved it. Glad to hear that. It was awesome and, having Karitha on. Yeah, so good. And I'm really, really, really excited to reread Incidents, which I didn't think I'd say. Mm -hmm. Loved the book, but it's not like a, wow, can't wait to dig into this trauma right. again. Right. Right. But I would, for Karitha's introduction and mm -hmm. for the footnotes, I really loved this book and agree that it is so beautifully written which is a huge testament to Jacob's skill uh, but I've got to agree with Caritha when she said that it does give us that added responsibility of not forgetting that it isn't a work of fiction and that need to read it rigorously like I love that comment but it is really easy with this book to just kind of lose yourself in the prose yeah. and in her storytelling uh, so something I really appreciated about Jacob's prose was the occasional turn to like quite dark humor or sarcasm mm -hmm. that it really struck me. Uh, so here's one example. Mrs. Flint, like many Southern women, was totally deficient in energy. She had not strength to superintend her household affairs, but her nerves were so strong that she could sit in her easy chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from every stroke of the lash. We are so used to that trope of the sickly wife. We see it in Austin, we see it in Gaskell and the Brontes. And here we have Jacobs really cleverly twisting that around to challenge that notion of the mistress being powerless or somehow less complicit than the master. It's this really mm -hmm. chilling and vivid image. Another line that had me thinking about how our familiarity with these novels by white women that Jacobs is playing with is when she's reading the papers to see who has come into New York 
and it put me in the mind of all the characters in like Austin's novels who will sit there and like wait to see if their like boyfriend has come to birth. Yeah. And then the stakes are so much higher. So that line is every evening I examined the newspapers carefully to see what Southerners had put up at the hotels. I did this for my own sake, thinking my young mistress and her husband might be among the list. I wished also to give information to others if necessary, for if many were running to and fro, I resolved that knowledge should be increased. And I thought that spoke as well to the conversation around like the Black Lives Matter movement that we've been mm-hmm. having and the, the need to share information. Mm-hmm. Like you really see that happening in her time in New York and the times that she helps the other enslaved people in their escape and, you know, people telling people where family members are or not telling on people, like the passage mm-hmm. of information. It's really interesting to follow that in the novel. And then I guess the last thing that I wanted to say just in response to the book and your chat with Caritha was just that, yeah, she really does just get into those laws in the book. And that makes it such a valuable text to read for someone who hasn't grown up learning American history. So obviously Mm -hmm. we touch on a lot of things uh, while working on the show and researching for the notes and stuff. And I think this book actually kind of blew some of those ideas wide open for me. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think this really made it dawn on me how specific a law that children follow the condition of the mother. As Jacob says, it's taking care that licentiousness shall not interfere with avarice. And then also the impact of living in a supposedly free state, uh, especially after the Fugitive Slave Act is passed. Um, The line, this empire state is a shabby place of refuge for the oppressed, really stuck with me. So yeah, if anyone hasn't read it, and especially I would say British people, this like this mm-hmm. is the book to read, I think. It's so concise. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it um, kind of sneaks up on you. Like the chapters are really short. There's a lot of information. She's very clear about what she's saying. And yeah, there are these moments of like dark sarcasm and mm-hmm. there's personality in her voice. Yeah. It's alive. Yeah. Like it's, it's very, very alive. alive. And it's not very sentimental. Like, you know, I you know I struggle with a more flowery mm-hmm. text. And I found this book to be way more balanced than any of the people she's writing about deserve. Uh and yeah. there was a lot less of uh so something in Pink and White Tyranny that and you see it in Alcott's work as well. Uh just this needs to like define the Anglo-Saxon race or people from Boston or people from the North or people from this Mm -hmm. area as being like these good old families and what that means. And I think what this book does a really good job of doing is just saying like, hey, there are people from the North who moved to the South and they are even worse than people that were raised here. And you can live in the North as a free person and you're not safe and you're not treated well. And, you know, and just that continued thing of, people that mean well, people who have good intentions, not doing anything to set people free in their lifetime and just Mm -hmm. dying with that promise hanging in the air. And it means nothing. You have to do it while you're alive. You have to act. I think too, like going back to your point about laws is that it just really puts them in context, right? Because you can read Mm -hmm. about these, like you can read about the Fugitive Slave Act and just know what it is. Mm -hmm. But then here she is telling you what this actually means to her life. 
yeah. how this affects her, how this affects everyone around her, what people are saying about it, how they're talking about it, what they're doing and what they're not doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just like it's the context that you need to understand like the system of slavery. So just really quickly, I did also want to say a little bit more about Iola Leroy, which Karitha and I discussed towards the end of the interview. Just to give you a little summary of this book, in case you haven't read it. I haven't, and guys. You should. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but I'm gonna. <laughs> I'll get gonna. the Broadview edition. It um, sounds wild. I read I've it's tried, wild. I tried to I tried to understand it. I've read so many spark notes and cliff notes and summaries of it while preparing for this, and it was just like Let's do a little summary of Iola Leroy here. Um, Karitha probably would have done a much better job, but here we go. The novel takes place in North Carolina during the American Civil War and the years that follow, but the story is not told chronologically and Harper really plays around with flashbacks, jumps in time, and different perspectives. It tells the story of a young mulatto woman with blue eyes and a very fair complexion named Iola. She is the child of a married slaveholder and a freed woman. Iola and her siblings pass as white and are raised and educated in the North with their African heritage kept from them. That's important. Some unintentional passing going on here. When her father dies, it is said that her mother's manumission is void. And so she and her children are considered slaves. Iola is tricked into returning to the South where she is sold. Several years later, Iola is set free by a union commander, and then she becomes a nurse in a military hospital. I think it's funny with Iola Leroy uh, and incidents that in both stories, and obviously I haven't read one of them, but in both Mm -hmm. stories you have this moment where you kind of have this knowledge of being a slave or being like your family like historically being enslaved people and Mm -hmm. um in but in but in jacob's novel it's kind of it happens while she's in it yeah and like the awakening isn't she's not going from one state because she's being wrongly told that she is and i that moment in incidents i it's so sad like that moment for the small child to kind of realize like as as nice as her mistress is being to her and as comparably comfortable her life is you know that is the reality so yeah Mm -hmm. it'll be really interesting to read Iola Leroy and just see how that kind of same like the awakening of it you know yeah how it's there's a lot of moments of like I I'm sure we're gonna talk about this a lot when we talk about passing as well because there's a lot of these moments of like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> Jessie Fawcett does this a lot in her work where she really like takes you back to the like the childhood moment where someone realizes that they are black and then they are like, you know, they can't go certain places. They can't mm-hmm. do certain things or they like are looked down upon, you know, by their peers or, you know, th- there's like this moment. She loves to blow that moment out like in all of her mo- novels. But yeah, that is like, I think, a very common theme in the in the books written by authors of color. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, passing is a big theme in Iola Leroy, and we'll be talking about it more in upcoming episodes this season. It's a big topic to get into, like, right at the end of this episode. So just, you know, like, bear with me right now. Um, 
But I do think there's just like a couple things that we should maybe think about as we're headed into these next couple episodes. So while preparing for the season, I read a thesis by Alana D. Tuller titled, One of those fortuitous endowments of the gods, black to white passing in the late 19th, early 20th century American literature. And it touched on a lot of the texts that we have talked about and will be talking about. And there's a couple of sections that I just really wanted to highlight as they're so relevant to our conversation. So Hannah, do you want to just read this one bit for me? Mm -hmm. Rather than using realism to depict the horrors of slavery that would spur readers to fight back, Iola Leroy's sentimentality served as a means of emotionally impacting those who still did not feel driven to take up the cause of racial uplift. Harper's deliberate decision to write a sentimental work rather than a realist work allows her to use passing as a way to expose negative psychological impacts of unintentional passing, a literary strategy whose power becomes especially obvious during the scene in which the secret of Iola's race is revealed. So this is one of the reasons that I think Iola and Incidents pair so well together is because you have um, the realism of the one contrasting with the sentimentalism of the other. But both books are working towards the same ends, right? We're just trying to reach different readers Mm -hmm. in different ways. We're employing different strategies. And these strategies are not going to work for all people. Some people are going to respond more to the realism, Mm -hmm. like you. And some are going to want that sentimentalism. Harriet Beecher Stowe. Wow. Given Stowe the last word here. Take a shot. Um, Big thanks to Dr. Caritha Mitchell for joining us. Please give her a follow at Prof Corey. That's P-R-O-F-K-O-R-I. And uh, you can give us a follow on the internets, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Where? Where? Where could people find us, Hannah? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Why She Wrote, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Mm-hmm.